This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Just a reminder, get on up to the website strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to this program, The Conspiracy Show, my podcast, the YouTube channel, the Strange Planet shop. Everything is all right there. Strangeplanet.ca. It's really a landing page and all the the buttons uh, sort of are at the bottom and you click on those and off you go and madly in all directions. But um, when you get on there, if you're getting on there for the first time, please take a moment and just register at the website. It'll take you two minutes. Just type in your email address. And what that will allow you to do is receive for free my newsletter, which is coming out. We're launching it this month. I'm really excited about this. Uh, the design looks fantastic. I'm working with an artist illustrator down in Arizona. If you've been to the uh, the website, you will have seen some of his handiwork there, not only at Strange Planet, but when you click on the Conspiracy Show button, uh, there's some kind of interesting cartoon caricatures of yours truly uh, tracking Bigfoot and and uh, aliens and the Illuminati and all that. That's uh, that's his work, and he's designed – that's Rick Forgus from Atomic Werewolf Studios, and he's designed the website – or uh, sorry, the, the newsletter. It's called Inner Sanctum. And uh, we're launching uh, just in a few days, actually. So get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca, register your email, and you'll receive the the, uh, the newsletter for free. Uh, and also you'll qualify for a monthly draw for some cool Strange Planet gear, T-shirts, mugs, uh, phone cases, all that. So uh, uh, there you go, strangeplanet.ca. All right, Grant Cameron stays with us, and he has access to the late Stanton Friedman's files. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network joins us in studio. You were talking about the, the 67 Cuban UFO case. 67 was such a hot year for UFOs. Anything in there you've uncovered regarding Shag Harbor? Because this month marks the, the anniversary of that UFO incident on the East Coast. Grant? Did we lose Grant? Oh, I think he dropped off. All right. Uh, Victor, yeah, yeah. Um, so what do you make of, uh, what is the importance, do you think, of, the, uh, of, this, of this file? And, and are you concerned that it's in provincial hands? I, I actually, in a way, it's, it's just the opposite. I am uh, happy to hear about it. I'm concerned in one way that they may have access to, you know, to repressing the information and maybe subtly hinting that, that Grant 
may curtail his, his, his activity. But in another way, now that it's, it's public in the public domain, I'm kind of pleased that it is because it does open a door, believe it or not. I'm glad, I'm really glad you raised the issue because it could open a door uh, with respect to disclosure with the government of Canada being involved in this kind of accumulation or at least housing this information and giving it tacit or implicit, uh, credibility. And why would they do it if it wasn't in some way uh, credibility? And if the government gives the UFO issue or documents relating to the UFO issue some sort of credibility by archiving it, that I think is a very uh, instructive piece of information for the general public and the media. I think the media can really play a, a large role in picking up that just the point that you make. I think it's an excellent point. All right. Uh, Grant uh, has rejoined us. I was asking uh, Grant about Shag Harbor. This is the this month marks the 52nd anniversary of the UFO incident uh, on the East Coast. Uh, have you come across any Shag Harbor UFO documents from Stanton's collection? Uh, yeah, there was a big uh, collection correspondence with uh, Styles and people like that who were involved. I don't know if there's anything new. The problem the problem was that um, it's it's a massive collection, so. Basically, what I did is for 42 hours, I stood in a spot, and I just looked at the file, and I said, okay, that looks interesting. Open the file up, click, 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 as fast as I can shoot the camera. Uh, I didn't read anything. I took 6,000 photographs in the five and a half days I was there, and uh, I haven't gone through probably 90% of it. I haven't read the, the material, uh, and I have, you get to flip all the images and stuff like that, so... It, I did photograph a lot of that stuff from the from the Shag Harbor. I don't know if there's going to be anything into it. So any of the major the major crashes like the Roswell and the Shag Harbor, any major story, Stan, like the alien autopsy, Stan would have had a file because because he was such a prominent researcher, he would get questions about all this sort of stuff. So he was uh, there's a, in fact there's like a, the Area 51, the collection there is probably. I'm seeing maybe 500 pages of material he had on Area 51. So he had, uh, like, Bob Lazar's court records. He had uh, the big operation where Bob Lazar teams up with uh, Bob Bigelow, the billionaire, just formed this company. He had the company papers. He had literally everything. He had 100, maybe 100, court, 100 pages of correspondence with uh, George Knapp, who was the main reporter on the Area 51 story, and Knapp. Knapp was trying to convince him that he believed the story was real, and Stan did never believe the story. So this correspondence was going back and forth. It was just fascinating stuff. So almost any major story that you have, there's going to be a huge uh, section of files in Stan, Stan's files, people writing to him about it or asking him questions about it. And Stan tried to keep up with all, all the material. So everything everything's going to have a big file, no matter what the story is. When you think about it, Grant, uh, I think it was back in 2009 that I, I discovered the Library and Archives Canada um, a website with the 9,500 files that yep. they have digitally done. Now, they, they've been there for a long, long time, uh, but no one paid attention to them. And I, I somehow, I, I, you know, I forget exactly how I tripped over it, but with 9,500 files uh, in, in their archives, Library and Archives Canada, Stanton must have 90,000 files. <laughs> oh, oh, it'd be more than that. More than that. It's like it's 15 pallets plus the computer. Like, there was nothing I looked at. Most of the stuff I was looking at was back in the 1980s. All the stuff in the last 10 years is going to be on, on his computer. So it's going to be hundreds of thousands of pages of material mm. that he has. And uh, the, the, the one drawback, and that's I always tell people, because we always have this conversation, I have a pretty big collection, and um, 
Well, I always ask people, what are you going to do with your files? Because my kid, it's always a story. My kid's not interested. He's going to throw it out. He has no interest in the thing. So I always talk and I would ask Linda Howe and I ask all these people. I know Jack Ballet's collection is going to Rice University, some of these big collections. And the problem is that nobody probably will ever, like some people say, oh, I want it to go to University of Denver. I don't want it to go here or whatever. I said, send it to Sweden. There's a, a place that has 300 UFO and spiritualist collections. And they said, no, I don't want it. I want it to go to this university. I said, do you realize nobody's ever going to look at a collection? Because uh, how many people travel to archives? I've been to 35 different trips to 25 different archives, but nobody goes to archives. So that And, and so she said, I talked to her about putting it online. She said, no, this is, this is a premature archives. We have no, in, there's no interest whatsoever. Uh, we're not set up to put this online. Uh, this is not our main uh, thing. So she said, anybody wants to see it has to come here. And the other the weird thing that I, I discovered when I was there, and this is going to be pretty interesting, is that it appeared Stan taped a lot of his phone calls. And so any of uh, these real, it's like this thing, there will be phone calls where he had audio tapes. Now they're going to, they're going to, um, create all this material and she even showed me some tapes that in one box and she they had merv griffin interview in the 1960s on video and he stan collected all this material so they're gonna uh, they're gonna uh, transpose it turn it into digital material but you got to go to the archives to see it now they've made some arrangement i said well i can probably get some of this stuff out and i've talked to greenwald about maybe finding some way to get this stuff online but it's a it's a big job, and it was a fifteen hundred dollar trip, and I've got to go back every six months, probably for a couple of years, to gather this material because it's it's not going to be put online. This is not their job. They're just going to put it in files and transpose the stuff. It's just anybody wants to see it, it's going to have to come to the archives. So it may be a little tourist thing, but most people won't if if they if they can't right click research on a computer, they're just not interested. What a they, shame. They Was any consideration given to donating this to the Roswell Museum? I mean, there could be a Stanton Friedman wing of the Roswell Museum, and all of this stuff, the letters and everything, could be displayed so prominently. Well, that's that's the problem. I've been at the Roswell Museum. I mean, I've been there to their thing, and there's most people don't even know they have a collection in the back. It's a vault in the back. It's controlled uh, temperature, the same as this one. And uh, I'll guarantee you there's maybe, I don't know what, 200,000 people go through there a year. I'll bet you there aren't 15 people who go through the archive, the, the stuff in the back, because it's, it's just very time-consuming to to put all this material together. Uh, and that's the thing is most people really won't go across the street to an archives to, cause you have to, you gotta, you gotta know how to do it. You've got to pull the uh, one box at a time. You gotta, you can't have a pen. There's all these different rules. And most people just say, put it online as if, you know, it's, it's some free job that someone's going to, you know, take, you know, five years of their life to put it online so they don't have to, to go. Most people don't go to archives. And that's what I said. Like I went, Stan went, I can only think of maybe two or three people who uh, go go to archives to look at this material because it's very expensive and it's it's very time consuming to go to these these major collections. So a lot of them don't don't really get seen by anybody. So you're going to be going through this. You're going to be going back and forth to Fredericton over the next yep. uh, little while. Okay, so you're doing that, and whatever that process might be, however involved it is, you sit down, you page through this stuff. What's going to happen, Grant, if you come across something uh, that's absolutely gobsmacking that just holy smoke this is it folks um what's going to happen then <laughs> I'm, I'm just well, trying to it, guess it's happened it would happen i i got 
contacted. I'm actually going to Laughlin. This time last year when I was in Laughlin, that's what happened. I got approached by James Rigney from Australia, and he said, I got this thing in the middle of the night. I said, I got to show you this document. And he showed me the famous Wilson Leak document mm-hmm. and the alien autopsy document, which came from the, the Edgar Mitchell file. And that's what happened to Edgar Mitchell, that Edgar Mitchell's family was not interested in the files. And there was somebody from Australia who happened to be there, was close friends with the family, and said, don't throw the stuff out, I'll take it. And he took it, and then a researcher saw a part of that stuff that he had and saw this dramatic document about the, the head of intelligence for the drug chief of staff trying to figure out what's going on and was blocked and was going to lose two stars and be demoted if he kept pushing the UFO issue. And he realized that they had the back engineering stuff and it wasn't getting anywhere and all this kind of stuff. So that's what happened. And there were our other materials from that, and uh, but I don't control it, from the the Edgar Mitchell collection, uh, I, I leaked the third one, which was a letter from Bigelow to Edgar Mitchell, inviting him to these meetings and the fact that they're working on metals since 1995. And then there was a fourth one for, that Edgar Mitchell sent to a very famous person who had died, and he sent it to his wife. And I was not allowed to release that because it was too confidential. So there are other documents. Uh, there were, I heard there were six boxes of material. So that's the thing, I, and because he controlled it, I would have dropped the whole thing. But if there's something dramatic, and I put some pretty dramatic stuff on the internet, I'm, on my presidential UFO Facebook site, I put maybe one or two documents on there every day, and there's pretty dramatic stuff that I put right. the I put I put the report on the Cuban thing on there. Uh, I have no reservation. I won't hold anything back. I'll if it's interesting, I'll stick it up on okay, Facebook. Grant, we got to we got to uh, break away here. We'll come back. Uh, one short segment remains. Grant Cameron, Victor Vigiani, the Stanton Friedman file. Stay tuned. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. A few minutes remain with Grant Cameron, presidentialufo.com, and Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, and we're talking about the Stanton Friedman files, uh, which are now being housed in a provincial archive in uh, New Brunswick, and uh, Grant Cameron has access to those files, and he's sort of releasing uh, some of those files online on his, um, it's the Presidential UFO Facebook page, Grant? Yes. All right. I want to, You mentioned Robert Bigelow. Uh, I'd be, in, I'd be interested in the, the correspondence between those two. What, what did, well, of course, we had Bigelow's big announcement on 60 Minutes on CBS a few years ago, his involvement in Academy to the Stars. Have you seen, or maybe even just personally, Stanton told you, what were his thoughts on, on, on Bigelow and what the, the Academy to the Stars is doing? Okay, that again, that's going to be on the computer because that's very recent material. Um, it, it won't be in the paper material. What I did find, and this is from about 1990, uh, Stan was working at one point on a project for Bob Bigelow. And there's one, and I haven't pulled it yet. I remember reading it. It was, he said, he was doing an interview. It sounded like he was doing interviews with some high-level people in Washington, uh, military people, and he said, I have to send a report to Bigelow. So um, there's that, but a lot of this stuff is is um, sort of coming out. I just posted on my uh, in the last 24 hours on my White House UFO Facebook all the material. Jack Vallee has just dropped a bomb. He's just dropped two books, 
and he talks about what was going on in behind uh, Bigelow in, in, in the um, 1995 when it started, how it was all leaking and stuff. There, there's a lot of material out there. It's just people don't really have access uh, to the material, and it's just overwhelming. Like I was mentioning the fact that, that I've got these 6,000 pages, and I'm trying to figure out how to put this stuff up. I've also got the whole collection for uh, Senator Barry Goldwater. Uh, that's 180 pages of UFO stuff where he was corresponding with people. Having that time, but I've got I was contacted with another collection from a guy by the name of Frank Rand, who people wouldn't even know. Frank Rand was in charge of an eyes-only presidential study for President Johnson, and he was writing a manuscript when he died. And so this whole manuscript is I've got one third of it now. Uh, on how this eyes-only study was done, who was involved in it, what they discovered. There's a lot of this stuff floating around. It's just you don't have enough uh, time in the day to do this kind of stuff. So uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of Bigelow stuff because uh, Stan was very conscious of money he had to do full-time. So a lot of these people gravitated to Bigelow in terms of getting funded. So I'm pretty sure there's going to be some stuff, but that'll all be on the computer. Because Stan's computer crashed, and they managed to get someone to recover the hard drive. And I think it was only last week that they moved the computer to the archives. And so once they've got that ready, then I'll make another trip down there to look at that and to look at this audiovisual stuff that they're transposing. It seems to me that um, the history of this man, uh, he, he seems to represent sort of a magnet of some kind. He, he just had a way of, uh, of drawing people to him and individuals who would come forward to talk about certain things that ordinarily they wouldn't do. They either learned to trust Stanton or, or developed some sort of relationship with him. Uh, what would you imagine, um, how deep might this go in terms of who Stanton drew towards him and who might you expect, I know that's speculation, but who might you expect to find in those files to say, once again, oh my goodness, so-and-so was uh, you know, a governor of a state of, uh, in the United States or some international figure, you find something that's really, really uh, a bombshell uh, with respect yeah. to how... How he that, was a that's magnet. the kind of stuff I'm looking for. That's yeah. the kind of stuff you, you figure. There was one from Buzz Aldrin, which I don't know if I put up yet. There was a letter from Buzz Aldrin. Mm-hmm. And there was um, a lot of people who would, um, as you pointed out, the Stan was the big guy, so you put it to him. And you know the FBI files, all these FBI files right. that came out on Stan. And the reason I was going to look at the FBI files is Stan had told me, and Bill Moore was the same thing, they worked together, that both their FBI files had been totally withheld in 1988. So Bill Moore had like 55 pages withheld, top secret, not top secret, secret national security. So you're going like, there's something here. Right. And they're withholding the entire FBI file. And when the, the FBI stuff came out, I posted it. And I was contacted by Richard Doty, and Richard Doty said all this stuff that's, that's been pulled out, because Stan's file is basically half gone. Like, I mean, they've, they've uh, exempted all this material. He said that Stan was contacted by a guy with some top-secret uh, documents, and the FBI was going to arrest them. They were considering arresting him, and they just figured they, they didn't have enough evidence. But that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. I haven't found anything really, really dramatic yet, but that was one story that Richard Doty tells is that Stan was approached. So when are you heading back? Well, I'm waiting for, if, the, if they get the, the, um, the audiovisual stuff, I'll go back, and if they get the, the computer, because the computer should be able to open up uh, tens of thousands of pages immediately. Uh, so it'll, I, hopefully not in the winter, but I, maybe by February I'll go back there and uh, 
unless there's a big uh, pile of material that comes out. That's basically what it comes to. If there's enough work for me for a week and a half where I can stand there and photograph stuff, I'll go back again. But um, right now, I'm just working on the 6,000 pages I've got right now. All right. Well, and waiting. great work, Grant. And again, uh, where can people go to see what you're releasing from his files, uh, the, the Facebook page? Okay, the Facebook page is the Presidential UFO, and I'm doing some PowerPoint presentations where I go through the documents and I explain what the documents are about. And I've got about six of them ready to go, and that's going to be on White House UFO YouTube channel. Excellent. Grant, thank you for all your hard work. We appreciate it. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you. Grant Cameron. Uh, Victor, thank you, my friend. You're most welcome. It's uh, a fascinating, uh, fascinating talk with Grant. All right, Absolutely. well, we'll we'll keep in touch, and yeah. we'll uh, we'll go to that Facebook page and, uh, and see what he finds as he sifts through Stanton Friedman's voluminous files. When we come back, the co-hosts of Reverse Speech Radio, including the founder, discoverer of Reverse Speech, Christian Dicadieu, and uh, David John Oates, to tell us about a uh, free Reverse Speech event coming up this month, this week, in fact. Stay tuned. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Coming up at the, uh, the end of this week, Saturday... October the 26th, mark this down, Saturday, October 26th, here in Toronto, if you're in the greater Toronto area. Heck, if you're anywhere in southwestern Ontario, up, upstate New York, it's worth the drive. Come on up. I will be um, uh, hosting or emceeing a, um, a reverse speech event, which includes a workshop in the morning, followed by a, a two-hour presentation from the man who discovered reverse speech he's uh, now a regular uh, he joins us the second sunday every month uh the the first segment uh, of the show to present some amazing mind-bending reversals and uh, he has just landed this afternoon all the way from australia he is here in studio with me uh david john oates welcome great to see you hey great to see you too thank you for having me and we also have christian dicadieu the real John Constantine from crime scene, crime and trauma scene cleaners and paranormal contractors. Those who are familiar with my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, uh, will be, be very familiar with uh, Christian. And he, uh, together with David, are the co-hosts of an exciting new podcast called Reverse Speech Radio. Christian, welcome to you, sir. Thank you, Richard. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so Saturday, October 26th, yes, 40 Donlins Avenue. That's the Greek... Uh, Orthodox Church, Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, just steps from the, the Donlin subway station. So, so very easy to get to. Uh, and you're kicking it off with a, with a workshop from 11 to 1? Yes, that is correct. Uh, David and I will be having a workshop for people that are interested in learning more about uh, reverse speech. And then the second portion will, in fact, be uh, hosted by yourself. And it's like a general conspiracy-based uh, uh, events with different types of reversals that uh, David has discovered and will be playing and presenting. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll look at some of the conspiracy topics, the uh, JFK assassination, 911, um, Robert yes. Kennedy assassination. We may even look at the moon landing. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover the whole gamut. 
Okay, so and in, in, in the workshop, are you going to teach people how to identify reversals? How will that work? Uh, yes, I'll give a brief uh, lesson on that. Uh, there's uh, several points that we're, there's several criteria that we've developed to recognise what is a genuine reversal as compared to coincidence or imagination. So I'll be covering that in the workshop: how to find the genuine reversals and recognise the difference. Do you need a special piece of equipment to take a piece of audio and flip it around so you have a reversal? Uh, well, yeah, you need software. Uh, we have software that we have ourselves. Uh, you can also get a good program called Goldwave that reverses. Uh, we also have our reverse speech app you can download for um, iPhone or Android that runs forwards and backwards and variable speeds. So if uh, people want to learn how to do this... Uh, I mean, this is not just a party trick, uh, although, I mean, and it could also get you into some hot water with your significant other if you start, you know, <laughs> yeah. where uh, were you last uh, night? <laughs> yes, I've got a couple of broken marriages to attest to that. <laughs> I'll bet, I'll bet. Okay, so that's the workshop from uh-huh. 11 to 1, and then, David, you're going to take the stage from 2 to 4, uh-huh. and you're going to be playing uh, lots of reversals. Yes, and you brought some with you. Of course, yes, you I always have. have plenty. Yes, yes. Uh, the first one we have here, uh, can we load this one up, uh, Owen, in the studio there? This is uh, Dick Cheney. Oh, can- yes. This is uh, this was recorded uh, four days after 911, okay? Uh-huh. And it has a very interesting uh, reversal that some of the conspiracy uh, people will quite like. So, All right. Uh, can we hear the forward speech? On the other hand, in terms of the sophistication of it, it's interesting to, to look at because clearly what happened is you, you got uh, some people committed to, uh, to die in the course of the operation. You got them visas, got them entered to the United States. They came here, some of them enrolled in our commercial aviation schools and learned to fly. And uh, we have in uh, reverse the show with the Sultan guarded. See if you can hear this. I'm sure my ears are in the guard. Oh, bye. The show by the Sultan. Guarded. Guarded. Interesting. So the, that hints at some Arab involvement that he is protecting. Mm. And uh, we'll go into that a whole lot deeper at the uh, uh, workshop on Saturday. All right. Mm. Uh, let me see here. Now, this one says uh, Files 11. Oh, I'm not yeah. sure what that what that refers to. Okay, okay. This is a chap by the name of James Files who oh, yes. uh, who claimed that uh, he was the uh, uh, shooter behind the grassy grassy knoll. Yes, and this is an interview he did with the late Jim Jim Mars, mm-hmm. and uh, Jim's asking him, uh, did it, did any of the bullets hit the sign? Because apparently there was some bullet holes in the sign. So right. just so just play it. All right. And um, did you ever notice if uh, any of those rounds hit that sign? No. I don't know if anybody else has stood or not. As far as I know, their rounds never hit it. I know my round didn't hit it. Like I say, I fired one shot. I was on target. Okay, so when he says I fired one shot, I was on target, one of the things we look for in reverse speech is, is it congruent? Is he saying the same thing forwards as he is saying backwards? Right. And we hear reversal here that says, hit him with my round. Hit him with my round. Hit him with my round. Yeah, I can, I can yeah. hear that. Hit yeah. him with my round. So that that's would, a congruency. That's a congruent reversal, and it would suggest that he's telling the truth. And right. uh, he claims that JFK assassination was a mafia hit job. So we'll, we'll look at that a little bit deeper, too, on the weekend as well. And again, yeah. this is Saturday, October the 26th. That's coming up very mm-hmm. quickly at the uh, Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlins Avenue. And again, it's so easy to get to. Just jump on the TTC, and it's it's literally steps from the Donlins subway 
subway station. Right. You just get out of there, go up the stairs, and I think turn left and go north a few steps, and there That's it right. is. Yep. Yeah. And again, Christian, you're going to you're going to be running a workshop together with David from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And um, I mean, should people? Would it be handy if they downloaded the app before they arrived? Oh, sure. That would be a fantastic idea. Yeah, they can fiddle with it and play around a bit, and then they may have some more questions to ask when they come to the workshop itself. So, All yeah. right. Uh, let me see. Let me grab another one here quickly. Can we do the Justin Trudeau simply because tomorrow is the election, or actually today is the election? Oh, today's the election. Right. Uh, yes, this is uh, – well, uh, yeah, we'll just play it. He's talking about – he's talking to some protesters. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry. I, I know you have a voice. I've just heard it. I'm asking you, can I have permission to continue uh, in, my, in my town hall with Canadians who came out to meet with their prime minister? I'm not asking for consent. I'm asking for permission to continue without being interrupted. So he's getting a little bit upset there, isn't he? Yes, indeed. Here, let's play this one without saying. See if you can hear what, hear what he's saying. All right, the backwards. No, okay. I'm an ass. Oh, I'm an ass. <laughs> <laughs> so do it again. Do it Can again. Can we hear that one again? Do it again. Interrupted. I'm an ass. I'm an ass. So. <laughs> I don't know anything about it's right there. Tuesday. I don't know anything about Canadian politics. So I have no preconceived notions. There, there it is. We should. Uh, hopefully, you're going to give equal time to all the federal leaders. So we'll hear some reversals from uh, <laughs> Andrew Shear and Jagmeet Singh and and uh, Elizabeth May. Uh, I mean, you could do an entire afternoon on that. Uh, oh, absolutely. Alone. Look, I've got 35 years of re- of research in my computer. I can, I can, I, 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 I could do workshop for months and months and months and still not cover all my material okay so uh, one more time saturday october the 26th that's this coming saturday i'll be there and uh christian d cadu from paranormal contractors and reverse speech radio uh 40 donlands avenue come meet the discoverer of reverse speech he's flown in all the way from australia for this exclusive event and here's the thing it's free the price is right it's a price is right it's a free event and uh quickly uh, tell us how to listen to reverse speech radio well, you can listen to Reverse Speech Radio on the Libsyn platform, or you could simply go to reversespeech.ca and click on the link that has the picture of the radio there, and it will take you to the uh, the podcast and all the d- available downloads there. Reversespeechradio.libsyn. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. Reversespeechradio.libsyn.com. New episodes drop every Thursday. Absolutely. That is correct. All right. I'll see you gentlemen on Saturday. Christian? Yep. And this is for you. Oh, it is a gift from David and I. Oh my gosh! Because uh, you are like the paranormal Superman by day. You're Clark Kent, and by <laughs> night you're defending justice and on the Crusades. So it's a, uh, it's a very nice. Well, uh, God bless you for that. Thank you. Nice we'll open it up in the uh, after the show. All right, you gentlemen. Bet. We'll see you Saturday. Thank you for this. Thank my you so thanks much. to uh, Owen. Uh, back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Happy. 
Happy birthday to you. Hey, Bye. where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. Beaming across North America, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Coming up in the next hour, Victor Vigiani and Grant Cameron will be here uh, to discuss... The, uh, the treasure trove of personal files, UFO documents uh, from the late UFO researcher Stanton T. Friedman. That's coming up in uh, hour two. And then towards the tail end of the program, the co-hosts of Reverse Speech Radio, Christian D. Cadieu and David John Oates, who has just arrived from Australia for a live event later this week. We'll tell you more about that. Uh, right now, Archbishop Ron File Enright stays with us. Uh, by the way, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, if uh, they are in the uh, or if they are in need of an exorcism, do, do you uh, do you work in Canada as well? Actually, we do. Uh, we have we have an excellent bishop up there, and he has his own crew. Um, but let me tell you uh, first of all that I am and I have been retired. The organization continues though, and as a result, if anyone wants to get a hold of me. They could join one of my seven forums I have on Facebook. And as a result, um, we're taking uh, people that are members of our forum are also members in the Order of Exorcists. Uh, all of them are clergy that are appointed exorcists, uh, a lot of bishops, a lot of investigators that have that actually have done our assessments for us. Um, they're all members of my forum on Facebook. My um, website is www.orderofexorcist.com. On that website, um, I have placed so much information in regards to um, various types of demonic um, issues that, that could come up, uh, as well as terrific information. Um, there are some radio links and some, uh, some TV links and, and things of this nature. Uh, but most of all, we have a really, really good, um, it's summed up as to what an assessment is all about. Why are some people targeted by demons for possession? Well, mainly because we're the creation of God. And all the purposes, the purpose for all the, the fallen angels is to um, make a mockery of God's creation. So as a result, we've become personal targets, every one of us. Anyone that has a brain and wants to better themselves and perhaps maybe open themselves up to the supernatural, they leave themselves wide open. Um, as I was waiting for your call this evening, I was watching television on YouTube, and I was watching this paranormal investigation crew, and it was quite interesting. One of them um, decided to bring a Ouija board and they, they went to the basement of this supposedly haunted house. And so they all stood around and played with the Ouija board, demanding that demonic entities come out. And as a result, um, this, was, uh, this was produced in the UK. So as a result, um, I'm watching this, you know, and I'm saying, wow, that's kind of interesting. Because, you know, the individual that was uh, claimed to be possessed as using the Ouija board, 
um, he was just basically overacting. I think he was just a, a really bad actor. And as a result, uh, the whole show was like basically cornered around him. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is there are so many charlatans out there. There are so many groups and, and there are some very good, genuine paranormal investigators and paranormal researchers. Don't get me wrong, but there are a lot of them that are just charlatans that will make claims that, that where there's no basis that, uh, that these, some of these individuals would call themselves an exorcist when in reality they're not, which means that they jeopardize the people they're trying to help or at least, uh, trying to service because let's face it. If you don't have a calling in doing this ministry, then you're doing it for yourself, which means that you're probably charging, you know, our organization does not charge for any services. We never have, we never will. An exorcism ritual is a ritual that, that is meant for us, people who have been called, to use it on individuals who have these terrible demonic issues. And it was freely given, and as a result, uh, as the scripture implies, we uh, freely receive, freely given. That's what we do. We follow the scriptures, and we charge nothing, not one thing. Now, you have people that are famous, people out there that are uh, basically Protestant, and they're charging for exorcisms as much as 1500 a ritual. Um, and, I'm, I, and the only thing I could say, and again, I strongly say this, though it is my opinion, is you have to stay away from these individuals. They're not even they're not only charlatans, but they're con men. They're trying to get your money. They're trying to do some type of advantage that would that would boast themselves up and and so as a victim you know you think your resources are limited and but really they're not all you have to do is pray that god leads you to the right group right church right organization that has a ministry of exorcism and an exorcist on pre- uh, present and a group of investigators i've just got a uh, I just have a, a few minutes here, Archbishop. Let me just fire off a couple of quick ones here, uh, and I'll have to have you back on because this has just been an amazing sure. conversation. Frightening, but amazing. Uh, have you have you actually seen a, a demon take physical form? What do they look like, if so? I've seen several demons. They look gray in skin. As I said, like, they look almost like they're victims. But the one exception is they all wear hoods, every single one of them. majority of them are transparent. They're very dark, very, very dark silhouette type of, uh, of individuals. Um, and I've seen them in shadows where there's, where there's no way a shadow could be, could develop. It's a light, there's a light wall and nothing is casting a shadow, but yet their shadows will appear on the wall. And then you could see their shape and to see what they're doing as they're doing it in motion. It could be very, very scary. Uh, uh, and maybe the next next time you have me on, I could talk about our ministry in these Skid Row hotels, where demonic uh, activity goes on constantly. And I spent I dedicated fifteen years of my life just on Skid Row hotels. Really interesting stories I could tell you. Would definitely have you back. Let me ask you this: This may be our final question. I almost hasten to add, or I almost hesitate to ask, but it has to be asked, given the the power that these demons have. Is it possible for a demon, and have you ever witnessed a demon reanimate a dead body? I'm going to say no. I have never seen it. Is it possible? Um, I don't 
really know, honestly. Uh, I've heard of spirits uh, jumping into bodies and using their bodies for a, for a, for a temporary uh, period of time, but I have never really heard of a demon. Uh, if a demon jumps in your body, it's a possession. Uh, so, um, but um, in any other term, um, you know, I, I, and for them, even for a demon to come and try to animate a, a, a cadaver, um, it would be to his benefit because his whole purpose is to destroy each and every human being who is willing and ready to open themselves so he could uh, create mass uh, havoc and, and, and just totally tear you in from the inside out and push you to the point of suicide and hopelessness. Well, I'm, and, I'm so actually thankful that the, your answer was no. Actually, I'm quite thankful. Yes, exactly. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Uh, Archbishop, this has been uh, absolutely fascinating, and we will have you back on. We'll stay in touch. And uh, I thank Excellent. you very much. Now, very quickly, uh, by talking about this, are we? is there any danger we're opening ourselves up to anything? Should Should we do a very quick prayer to sign off? What are your thoughts? We could do that because every one of us are, has always been open. We still are. All right. Can uh, we but do, right now, yes. Can we do it? Do you have a, a quick heaven, one? Yes. I, I pray that you will uh, protect every person that has heard this show and that each person will understand that the reality of Satan is as real as your existence. Please bless each of us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Archbishop. You're welcome. Thank you. Good night. Good night, now. When we come back, Victor Vigiani, Grant Cameron, two tireless ufologists talking about the late Stanton Friedman and his voluminous files. Five decades they've been accumulating. What's in them? We'll find out when we come back. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big how-do to each and every one of you listening in on our flagship station, AM 740, 96.7 FM, Zoomer Radio here in Toronto. Hi, all, to those of you tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, and hello to you, streaming us live on zoomerradio.ca and the YouTube channel Strange Planet. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. By the way, we are live streaming audio on the Strange Planet YouTube channel, just audio, no video. I'm not entirely enamored with my new haircut, so it's not quite ready for public consumption. But you know, the difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut is about two weeks. So hopefully in a couple of weeks, we will um, uh, bring back the uh, the video streaming on the live YouTube stream. All right. Uh, we lost the grandfather of ufology earlier this year. Stanton Friedman was tireless in his pursuit of the truth regarding the UFO ET issue. And when he passed... As you can well imagine, he left behind 50 years worth of files. And another great and tireless UFO researcher, Grant Cameron, has been given access to those files. Grant became involved in ufology in 1975 with personal sightings of an object which locally became known as Charlie Red Star. The sightings occurred in 
uh, Carmen, Manitoba. And in the past few years, uh, Grant has turned his research interests to the involvement and actions of the president of the United States in the UFO issue. He's made uh, dozens and dozens of trips to the National Archives and most of the various presidential archives looking for presidential UFO material. And now, now of course, uh, he is scouring the files of Stanton Friedman. Grant Cameron, welcome back. How are you? Good, Richard. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate your interest in what I'm doing. Uh, we're also joined in studio by a good friend of the program, yet another tireless UFO researcher, Victor Vigiani, is director of the Zealand News Network. His research and analysis of anomalous and aerial phenomenon spans over three decades. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling work with individuals reporting anomalous experiences, presentations and journalism in the field of ET disclosure issues. Victor, welcome. Great to be back with you, and uh, hi, Grant. Hi, Victor. Let's talk about... Uh, you, you walk into, I'm, I'm guessing that these files uh, were, are housed in, in Stanton's old home. Is that correct? Um, well, what happened was, um, before Stan died, he um, had had, he'd had a heart attack a little while back. So he had decided to retire, so he went on this one-year thing where he's doing the retirement speeches and whatever. But he started to move his files. Um, he made, a, he got an offer from the uh, New Brunswick Provincial Archives to uh, house his files. So he actually had 61 years of files. And so they started to collect the files from his house before he actually died. And um, he had the, according to the archivist, Joanna, Joanna who's there in charge of the collection, uh, the entire basement was collection. So he had three rooms there, uh, just uh, piles and piles and piles of stuff. In fact, um, there was, um, when I was there, there was, um, on the Thursday, there was a, um, a pallet that came in, a complete pallet full of boxes. And she said, uh, she took me for a tour and I saw this pallet that had just come in, about 40 big archives boxes on it. And she said, the collection is 15 times that plus they're picking up the computer. So the computer's got files from the last couple of years, but just massive, massive collection of files. So they started to move the files. And what they um, discovered was that Stan only had very, very few files that were actually in in filing cabinets. Majority of his files, and I don't know how he ever kept track of stuff, was basically stacks of material as high as a person. And stacks of material were all over the place and and stuff. And so they asked him, well, Stan, like, why why are these not in you know, file folders and stuff? He said, I don't know, secretary, you know. <laughs> so, so it's just massive collection now she told me two years they have um three archives working full-time and they have um two interns that work on it and uh, cbc actually did an article last monday in in the and they actually went down and interviewed these um the two interns that are working on the collection and she told me two years she told another researcher 10 years now she may have just been joking but what you got to realize is the majority of what Stan had is not in files. So it's these big stacks of paper. And so they just put these stacks of paper in boxes and they moved them to the archives. They only basically got his computer, I think, about four days ago. So uh, that's the last of the material. They've been moving the material for months and months and months because it's just massive 
amounts of stuff as we moved in trucks and stuff like that. Don't you find it so, interesting, Grant and Victor, that the pro- the province would allocate resources, taxpayer money, to archive the the documents owned by a ufologist when sort of the official uh, the the official pr- uh, view of ufology is it's pseudoscience and it's nonsense and yet here they are spending tax dollar money to uh, to archive this material yeah and then they are spending a pile of money so you look at three ar- three archives full time for two years uh, that's the six figures i mean that's a huge amount of money uh, she actually told me the the process was that they actually had I don't know what kind of backlash against this, but um, a provincial archives, if you know how, how what they do, I mean they just basically have like all the death records, all the birth records, all the church records, all the records of uh, you know people selling properties and stuff like that. This is not something they touch ever. I mean it's just completely and they said not only that but stan was not he was an american he was his wife was from new brunswick but so she had to this joanna who basically brought the collection in as in charge of it had to convince the archives to bring in a collection from a guy who wasn't even from new brunswick and and a collection that had not not no no um sort of background in it at all so you basically have these researchers who have don't know uh, you know a UFO from a, you know, a table, they have no idea what they're doing. And so when I was there, I actually provided them uh, with a list of uh, topics, like things that Stan was into, like MJ-12, uh, Roswell, all these different topics that you just file that under, and all the various names. Now, some of the names I brought up, I said, like, you know, Phil Klass, she said, yeah, that one we know already, because they were finding all these these letters from, from Phil Klass, the big uh, skeptic. So they have to learn this whole thing. And the archivist, Joanna, who's in charge, and I think she's been doing it for 25 years or whatever, she said in order to do one box, and she's been, done this for decades, it takes her four hours. And she said every piece of paper will be handled between five and six times by people before it actually makes it into a, a proper file. So this is a massive job. They have no idea what UFOs are about. Um, and I guess they just wanted to save this massive collection um, from uh, destruction and uh, are, are doing this massive job, spending a huge amount of money. So I give them uh, great credit that um, that they went ahead with this, because it's not the kind of stuff a provincial archives actually handles. You would have thought the, the, the university library would do it, but uh, no, it's the provincial archives. I think it's really interesting that Richard brings up that point about public uh, funds being allocated to uh, to archive Stanton's material. I never really thought about that angle because if you if you think about it for a second, Grant, if uh, taxpayers' dollars are being allocated to uh, to kind of archive these materials, you might think that that could become an issue, especially with respect to you know tax dollars being used and you know things like MJ12 being mentioned or the fact that Stan was investigating investigated by the FBI and that he was uh, you know involved in different international aspects of the UFO issue i find that an extremely uh, pointed uh, I, I guess set of circumstances that could really evolve into some sort of uh, disclosure and I, and i might also add that at one point and i recall this uh, even Either as I was getting into the UFO issue in the uh, in the late seventies and, and and early eighties, uh, the program as it happens on on CBC with Barbara Frum uh, did interview Stanton several times, 
uh, I remember not just one interview, it was not just a one-off kind of thing. So it's interesting that not only does the uh, Provincial Archive, but CBC also took it upon themselves years and years back to interview Stanton Friedman with respect to the UFO issue. Yeah, he's a pretty uh, big name in in, uh, Fredericton, because it's actually a pretty small place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's got part of it. But she's getting a lot of um, reaction. She's got some major media talking to her, and this archives um, could actually become famous based upon what they've done, because she's, I think, coast-to-coast. She's going to be on coast-to-coast, and and here's this. and, And I think the woman that's running it, is the head of archives in Canada. They have a board for archives all across the country. I think she's the the chairman of the of the thing. So she's a, not just a small researcher, but she did tell me that she had to do some selling in order to get this uh, collection accepted. What what kind of documents are there? Just a lot of handwritten notes. Are there are there official declassified documents? What do we? What is in this collection? Well, as Victor would know, uh, Stan was an old, old, old school guy. I mean, I, he was the last guy doing presentations that went to PowerPoint. He said, no, I'm not going to do a computer. I'm not having anything to do with this. I need my slide projector. And so everybody would be doing PowerPoint. Stan would still be doing um, uh, his slides. And he did overhead slides. You find some of the stuff in the archives. But he was, a, so he was an old school guy. So a lot of the stuff is still in paper form. Whereas the vast majority of researchers today, they really don't work with paper. And so you've got to remember, all this stuff is collected by snail mail with exchanging stuff. So he has a lot of um, um, a lot of FOIA material. He went after the CIA for their material. He went after NSA uh, through FOIA. And he was very famous for the, the procedure they now use is to white out documents. That's because... The NSA, he got the big fight with the NSA where they they uh, sort of blacked out huge portions of the, the documents. So Stan would go around for years and show the thing, and, well, there's no UFO cover-up, take a look at this. And he would show page after page, it's all blacked out. So they actually changed the policy, I think, because of Stan, and now they use whiteout, which, which doesn't look quite as bad with parts of the document missing. So he had that kind of stuff, but a lot of his stuff was... Um, like the research on Roswell, which he was basically famous for finding the main three witnesses for the Roswell crash that became the what was called the Roswell Incident in 1980, his famous book that sold a million copies and made Roswell a, a household name. Before 1980, nobody knew what Roswell was. So Stan got that. So he, I mean, a lot of the documents is, is that kind of stuff. It's fighting with skeptics. He took on uh, Phil Klaas. He took on... Uh, Oberg, he took on, uh, um, Sagan, the great Randy, anybody that he, that wanted to go in. So a lot of this was his correspondence going back and forth. And, um, so really nothing in terms of, um, um, like stuff that we wouldn't have seen. I knew basically what he had. There was a couple of surprises that, that he had, like he would have to get material. And I actually told the archivist to start saving this material because he got a piece of metal, and of course they didn't realize. I said, "You have to put this under lock and key. I mean, you cannot let people just touch this thing. Somebody's going to walk off with this piece of metal that somebody claimed it was a piece of the Roswell crash." And uh, Stan, I guess, in in having so much material, that so much material came to him from people, and that's what a large, large part of the collection is. It's fan mail, people sending him. I was at your lecture. I had this UFO sighting. And a lot of the collection is that. So he would get, but he got pieces of metal 
And he got this photograph, which um, I've been circulating on the internet, which has gotten a lot of um, uh, from Aurelio, Ontario, south south of Aurelio, where there's a, uh, a, a cameraman from one of the TV stations actually photographs these cows in this field, and there's seven UFOs. This is a daylight photograph, and pretty clear UFOs when you blow this thing up. There's these seven UFOs over top of these cows from 1982, and they sent it to Stan in 1984. So in terms of the material I've seen, uh, they've only started to to do the collection. Like they said, it's going to be at least a couple of years till they get it. But some of the stuff is popping up where people send him photographs, and Stan would just put it in a file, and you know he didn't have time to really do anything with it, and really didn't investigate a lot of this stuff. But uh, you find these weird little uh, letters that people sent, and that's basically what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that uh, I know in my own collection, that you have something that's a fantastic story, but you don't have time to do it, or somebody says, swears you to secrecy, and you put it in there, and you say, well, you know, when this guy dies, I'll release the story. And this stuff collects in, in files, and um, it usually becomes exposed when somebody dies. So you go in there, and you find stuff that that uh, Stan never made public. Well, I think probably uh, in, in a lot of ways what you're referring to, the level of or the category of information that might uh, be what you're you know, sort of implicitly talking about, Grant, is, is the smoking gun would be the, the Wilbert Smith document. I, I find that, uh, and many people, and even yourself, uh, have referred to that particular document and the work by Wilbert Smith and Stanton dealing with that whole uh, two- or three-page memo. Uh, that has to be one of the things that, you know, looking back, will come about uh, vindicating just about everything that Stanton Friedman did. Yeah, and there's one I actually just put up on Facebook tonight that um, that we had, and, and Stan was actually part of that, that movement in 1978. He was putting pressure, along with a guy named um, Arthur Bray from, uh, from Ottawa, and a guy by, he actually changed his name to Mr. X from Hamilton, and they were putting great pressure on the Canadian government to release the material, and that's when the top-secret memo came out. But the other document, which I put on the Internet today, is a document from 1967. Uh, I believe it was National Research Council, and that's where they talk about the fact that um, the confidential parts of, of Project Magnet, and that's where the top-secret memo came from, where the Americans tell the Canadians, it's uh, uh, UFOs, ex- flying saucers exist. It's the most highly classified subject in the United States. There's a small group headed by Dr. Vandervar Bush who are trying to figure out what's going on. So that came out in 78, but there's a document that in, from 67 where they say uh, at no time is this to be made. There's the, the confidential parts of Project Magnet, at no time are they to be released to the public. And then at the end it says, and these documents are not to be destroyed until the subject cools off. So that was one of the documents that Stan found as well. It was in that, that uh, collection. And the weird thing about it was I, I had always looked for a copy, a clean copy, because I didn't have a clean copy of the document. And Stan would always talk about it. He must have talked about that top-secret memo, because it's the only real top-secret UFO memo in the world. And there, there are none in the United States. This is the only one. So Stan would talk about it, but he never showed it. And the reason he didn't show it is because it wasn't in a file. I found it in one of these piles of paper. And it was just bizarre that this very famous document uh, was stacked away in a, in a pile of paper. Are we not nervous that this is now, this document, for example, is now in the hands of a provincial government? Well, we always had the document. We said the, the top, because what happened was um, they were putting pressure on the government in, in uh, it was the Department of Transport files. 
So they declassified it, and they just didn't look. When when they declassified it, they, they should have destroyed this top-secret document. So there was, uh, was Project Magnet uh, files, which was maybe, I don't know, 2,000 pages or something like that. And it was just these two documents that were in there that were just explosive. Where the, you know They had declassified it, and, the, and I guess the archivists really didn't realize that this was you know, this, is, this controversial stuff. And yet, over the years, we've had this document since 1978, and we've circulated it, and most people just look the other way. They don't realize that Canadians have the most uh, powerful UFO document around. And, and I've got copies. I just have a clean copy, because I had one that where somebody put on the top of the document, sent to Stanton Stan Friedman, and I wanted a clean copy that I could show without this, you know, shown to Stanton Friedman. And Stan was the guy that basically exposed it in 78. So it's been around, but it hasn't really got the attention that you would think a document that says flying saucers are for real. But Wilbur Smith went down to the United States and what he it went to the Canadian Embassy and he said, um, you know, I made discreet inquiries to the Canadian Embassy in Washington and I was told the following things by American officials. So this is a three page document that basically says uh, the whole deal, the whole thing's for real. This was written in November of 1950 and it was declassified in 1978 and for some reason, the Canadian government let it out, and it's been around. But that was one of the documents I was looking for. And the other thing I was looking for was a, a, a story about a Cuban um, a, um, a fighter jet from 1967 that I knew Stan had been involved in. I did find that file. That was in a filing. And that was that um, they, uh, the Cubans picked up a UFO coming in into Cuban airspace, and they scrambled two uh, MiG-21 jets. And it was picked up by the NSA. And Stanford got a, a source that had told him about this. And I've got the document. I saw the document, who the source was, and stuff like that. And it became very controversial because the National Enquirer filed an FOIA. The, the, the NSA said, you know, we're not going to talk about this. You know, we just rejected it. And uh, they gave it to a researcher. And the researcher went to the NSA and said, if you don't give us what we want, I'm going to phone the, the Cuban embassy. The FBI showed up at his door the same afternoon. And so Stan got into the sort of controversy about this this uh, source that he had this story. And what happens is the there's a naval facility in Florida that's monitoring this whole communication. And the, the thing is coming in. The Cubans scramble these two jets, and they ask it to identify itself, and it doesn't identify itself. And they lock onto the thing, and um, they they they, um, they arm the the missile. And they lock on, and they're about to shoot, and the, the, you, they, they pick up the communication from the back guy. The front plane just disappears, just vaporizes, just gone. And the, they, so the NSA picks up the back guy screaming and yelling, the plane's gone, the plane's gone, it's disappeared, it's, it's, you know, it's disintegrated. And uh, this is all picked up by NSA. And uh, Stan was in the middle of this big case, and this was 1977 or something like that, when, when they picked up this story, it happened in 1967 over Cuba. All right, uh, Grant, stay put. This is amazing, amazing stuff that you're uh, unearthing, excavating, uh, really, layer by layer, decade by decade. The uh, the personal files and uh, UFO documents belonging to the late Stanton Friedman. And we'll be back, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network in studio. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? 
You betcha. No cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Well, the polls will be opening across Canada in just a few hours, and we'll be Casting ballots for a a new federal parliament? Will it be a conservative minority? Will it be a liberal minority? Or can the conservatives pull off an upset and win enough seats to form a majority? We won't have to wait much longer to find out. So, uh, Justin Trudeau is out jogging one morning, and he notices a little boy on the corner with a box. So curious, Justin runs over to the child and says, Hey, what's in the box, little guy? To which the little boy says, Kittens! They're brand new kittens! Trudeau laughs, and he says, well, what kind of kittens are they? Liberals, the child says. Oh, that's lovely. Justin smiles as he jogs off. A couple days later, Trudeau is running with his colleague, Bill Morneau, and he spies the same little boy with his box just ahead. So Trudeau says to Morneau, he says, Bill, watch this. And they both jog over to the boy with the box. Trudeau says, look in the box, Bill. Isn't that cute? Look at those little kittens. Little boy, tell my friend, Mr. Morneau, what kind of kittens they are. The boy replies, they're conservatives. What? Trudeau says, I jogged by here the other day. You said they they were liberals. What's changed? Well, the little boy says, their eyes are open now. But um, boom. Oh, <laughs> this is not the Tonight Show. We normally don't do monologues, but I thought a little election humor. All right, that'll be enough of that. Uh, coming up this hour, Archbishop Ron File Enright, Chief Exorcist with the Sacred Order of St. Michael the Archangel, will be here. He's performed countless exorcisms over the last 30 plus years, and he'll reveal, among other things, physical and mental signs that you or someone you know may be suffering from demonic possession. In the second hour, when ufologist Stanton Friedman passed earlier this year, he left behind a treasure trove of information, files accumulated over more than five decades of research. Well, Grant Cameron and Victor Vigiani will be here to discuss the contents of those voluminous insider files. And then towards the uh, tail end of this transmission, the co-hosts of Reverse Speech Radio, Christian Dicadieu and David John Oates, will join me live in studio to discuss an upcoming reverse speech event happening here in town. In fact, uh, David John Oates just arrived earlier today from Australia. Again, they'll be uh, live in studio 
sort of last order of business before we dim the lights. All right, we're going to discuss the holy ritual of exorcism. From the early 1980s, Archbishop Ron File Enright has been involved in a not-so-popular ministry called exorcism. He was trained by many exorcists over the years who were his mentors and former bishops. With over 30 years of experience, he established an order of exorcists called the Sacred Order of St. Michael the Archangel. As a Catholic priest for, again, over 34 years, he's interacted with angels and demons. He and members of the order are available by appointment for demonic investigations, exorcisms, house blessings, and other religious rituals. Archbishop Ron File and Wright, welcome aboard. How are you? Oh, pretty fair. Thank you for having me, Richard. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. So when we say when we say that this is not a, a popular ministry, uh, what do you mean by that? I, I mean, assuming you're talking about the way that it's perhaps uh, perceived by what the mainstream media, etc. Or, I mean, because I would think you know that exorcisms would be extremely popular today for a number of reasons. You know, you would think so. Um... The ministry of exorcism is actually a specialty. It's something that's not taught in the seminaries. Uh, when a priest receives his holy orders, he's taught a whole slew of things, but the ritual of exorcism is not one of them. Um, to do this, you have to, if you have a calling, you have to consult your bishop, and your bishop would point you in the right direction for training. And then, even then, there's a few years involved. Uh, before you're actually appointed an exorcist, either in a diocese or a parish. When I say uh, popular, I mean in demand, because uh, from everything that I'm reading uh, these days, it, it seems like uh, possession is on the uprise. Would that be a fair assessment? You know, I, I've been hearing that lately, and I have, of course, my own opinion, Um and that is that um, I believe that from day one, from the time that Lucifer was thrown out of heaven, fallen to earth, along with a whole bunch of fallen angels, I believe from that time on, when they started to interact with human beings, I believe that the cases back then are probably the exact same amount of cases that are occurring now. The only difference is is our ability to actually track them with our modern technology. We could track information around the world. We want to make an inquiry in regards to how many exorcisms are actually done in the country. We have the technology to zoom in on that and make an assessment. But I'm going to say, and again, this is my opinion, I believe that, um, that the amount of exorcisms that you hear today have always been the same. It's just our reporting system has been updated, and so now we see how many there actually are. Fascinating. Would it be also fair to say, because as you say, they don't teach this in seminary, it it almost seems to me like the church is somewhat embarrassed I don't know, embarrassed? Is that the right word by this this whole thing? They don't want to talk about it? It's all very hush-hush? I think that uh, it's a subject that is very uncomfortable because it's a, it's a dark subject, a very dark subject. In fact, it's a subject that most clergy, um, unless they have a, a certain interest, 
would probably shy away from because it doesn't highlight the wonderful, joyous, abundant life that you could have through Christ when you're talking about demons and demonic possession, demonic infestation, demonic oppression. All these things are very negative. And for a, pe- a preacher to sit, uh, stand behind a pulpit and start teaching these things, it would be, uh, it'd be a, not only a major distraction, it would probably lose most of his congregation. Most of the per- parishioners would probably want to go to another church where they talk about the, all the wonderful things about Scripture and all the wonderful things um, that are actually um, all about God. But when it comes to the dark side, when it comes to this dark scenario we're talking about, very few, very, very few ministries will actually teach on it and or instruct upon it. That's why I, I say it's a specialty. Um, a majority of the victims that come to my organization are people that have been turned down from their local parish. They have, um, and, and the only reason I, I could come up with is, is most of the um, bishops and clergy, um, they subscribe to the new concept of uh, psychological evaluation. They've come up with, um, which is true in, in one sense, that demonic possession actually mimics mental disturbing or psychosis. So as a result, um, a lot of the parishes and jurisdictional bishops they're subscribing that these problems were problems that exist hundreds, if not thousands, of years ago. And so the scenario is different, because now we have our, our new medicine, we have a new way of diagnosing an individual who displays um, strange behavior, and we can put a label on it, and we'll call it a psychosis. And so now, you know, now most of the um, clergy, if you will, are, are now educated in, uh, in the science of, of, of healing through medicine. And so they're more likely to, uh, to give that kind of information out opposed to talking about demons and, and the supernatural. So in, in other words, the, the local parish, when someone comes to them and, and says, I, 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 I'm having some problems or my, someone I know is having some problems, we think we might be possessed or whatever, they're more likely to dismiss it as some sort of a psychological disorder and refer to them to a psychologist rather than to the, the exorcist. That's exactly true. Uh, the reason being is that the majority of the parishes are not equipped with, uh, with the training and, and, and understand a person has to be appointed to the position of an exorcist and they have to be clergy. And there's very few people that happen to fall in that category. So, therefore, it only stands by reason that the amount of, of dioceses and parishes around the, around the world, actually, uh, very few are actually trained in this area. Even though the Vatican does have a training uh, session that goes on for uh, clerical and for laity, uh, they have a, a course uh, in, in exorcism, or rather in, in the demonic. But even then, that's not enough training. What happens is you need to have a mentor who is a bishop, who is experienced, who's maybe up there in years, and who pretty much knows what's going on and, and gets it. And as a result, the, uh, the priest would, um, would be assigned to a mentor. The mentor uh, would take him on as an assistant, and he would be in training for several years. Some, uh, some I would say, two years, some four years. 
And um, for myself, it was four years. So after the fourth year, okay, you've been exposed and actually have hands-on experience in regards to the uh, ministry of exorcism. So therefore, you're in better position to um, to do this ministry and be appointed as an exorcist. Does the Vatican have a chief exorcist? Yes, they do. And uh, But again, you know, it's like uh, they're overwhelmed. Um, there's very few priests that are, uh, as I said, trained in this because it's not a real interest. You know, we're talking about a very dark subject. We're talking about something that could actually take over your entire being, where the personality of the demon can actually manifest in that individual. It's a horrible thing, a scary thing to, to talk about. Right. Um, something that you will not hear in, in, uh, and preach behind most pulpits, because it's a dark subject. I, I do want to get into the protocols with you in, in terms of evaluating someone, because that's important. But first, let me ask you how you, you got involved. In, in, as you say, it, it wasn't taught in the seminary. How did you get the calling to become an exorcist? It, and, and a person who is called to be an exorcist has to be called by God. It's a divine calling. It's a supernatural event that occurs in one's life. When God actually calls them to this ministry, in my case, it was done at a very early age. I'm 10, 11 years old. I was in the in the bathroom taking a shower, and this bright light just appeared out of the window, and it just illuminated the entire room. It blinded me for a second, and then at that point, I like to think that I, I like to describe this as my my vision, if you will. I saw myself much older, and in a Roman collar. That's the clergy shirt, and not as an exorcist, but just as a priest. And I was um, basically a parish priest. At that point, um, when the years went on and I decided to uh, receive holy orders, which is the ordination ship into the priesthood, um, at that time, I wanted to follow my divine calling. So I consulted my bishop, who I knew was was an exorcist, and he was like, you know, in his 60s. And I asked him if the, uh, if, if I could perhaps maybe learn and, and become part of this ministry. And at that point, he assigned me to a bishop who, again, was much older than I, and who's been in the ministry for over 40 years, and he was an experienced exorcist, and he uh, just happened to need an assistant. And so there I was. He was my mentor. He became my mentor. At that point, I stayed in training for about four years. And in the interim, um, I was... Uh, I had a hospital uh, church ministry going on. I was servicing about four or five convalescent hospitals in Glendale at the time, Glendale in California. Uh, and so um, at that time, after the fourth year, and this is after several hundred um, episodes of experiencing the actual ritual of real, genuine um, people that are possessed by, by the demonic, um, I... Um, I mean, I saw so much in the very beginning, it just simply took me over the hill, almost to a point where I had to kind of stand back and say that I really, really want to do this. And then, of course, my calling uh, was a, a pretty strong one. Anyone who's called by God, believe me, it's a, it's a calling you, you tend to follow. Um, so anyway, um, uh, make a long story short, um, I was elected, appointed as, uh, as, the, uh, as an exorcist for my bishop's jurisdiction. And then at that point, um, as I was 
helping and still assisting. I even even though I was appointed, I was assisting other exorcists who were my seniors. Um, we started to receive more and more calls from uh, from parishioners who were stating that they were having problems in the in the family unit. People were in their in their family were acting strange. It'd be strange behavior. They'd be doing things that would be strange. Things in the house would be. Um, Kind of spooky in one sense because things were starting to move by themselves, and things started to appear and disappear in certain parts of the house. So they they were very concerned, and so they decided to consult with the church, and they in turn referred them to us. And at that point, um, we would send a group of investigators to actually make an assessment based on the information that they were willing to give us. And uh, this is a, a very long process, which I could explain to you um, if you have the time. We certainly will. Uh, I, I do want to get into the into the protocols, but I just had um, a couple other questions regarding your training. Sure. In in addition to sort of on the job training, and you're assisting in these actual exorcisms, uh, and I also want to touch upon you know what you actually witnessed. But uh, are you also, I don't know, research, researching about? various types of demons, and, and are you taking a, a course in, in actual demonology? No, no, no. That's that's something an investigator would do. No, no. Our main main focus is in the individual to, to make a determination as to whether or not it is a true, genuine case of demonic possession. And if it is, we have to make a clinical assessment and that means that a psychiatrist is involved, a healthcare professional is involved, and then, of course, all of our investigators are professional investigators. They will um, make notations. They they will uh, pick up the psych evaluations along with their health records. They would collect all the information along with doing research on the individual to find out more about who they are. Uh, because sometimes there are different, uh, just because someone claims that there's some type of demonic thing going on, it doesn't mean that it truly is. So what we have to do is go the extra step and make sure that we are addressing the the actual problem, because if we don't, and if the person is psychotic, all this can actually push them right over to the point of a psychological break, yes. which could lead into a suicide. Right. So, this is why it's so important that the assessment is done, and it's you know it's not done like like um, it's not like a twenty four hour thing. It, this whole process takes about three to four months, depending as to how much information we have in the assessment. If the psychiatrists, if they have their own doctors, we have to wait for their reports. Everything's a waiting game, and then if if we're trying to do some additional research on the house, on the location, uh, even on the town, uh, you know, the city. Uh, we have to, uh, you know, our investigators look online. They look for articles uh, regarding, if there's any articles regarding this individual that, uh, that we have taken on as a victim. And um, so, I mean, there's a whole lot of investigation going on. It's not, you know, done in a, in a drop of a hat. We have to actually go through the proper steps. So and only after all... Done, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, once all those steps are done, then it's still not over. Because then we have to... They have to submit it to me. I have to go through it. I have to make an assessment. 
I have to wait for the reports from the psychiatrist and from the and the, from the medical doctors. And then if the psychiatrist, um, you know, I have to get some kind of um, 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 recommendation that this is in fact something that's that's beyond their scope of specialties and and uh, beyond their scope of, of logic. And uh, and they have you know, and they're totally lost as to why this individual has come to these uh, symptoms. Um, and based on that, those recommendations, I take all of that stuff and then make an evaluation. Now, in my layer, if you will, I have all of these hundreds, maybe a few thousand CDs, you know, flippy dot, uh, um, the, the flippy, um, what do you call those? Floppy disks. We used to call Thank them. You. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty old technology. But... <laughs> you have lots anyway, of documentation to go through. Yes. Oh, yes, a lot. But each of those discs represents a case that has been evaluated and where the assessment was actually recorded. And as a result, whatever is on that disc is not just uh, information, but behind that disc is something more, which can be awfully dangerous. And I could tell you more about that uh if, if you like. Yes, we, we are coming, uh, we are rolling into a break here in just about a minute, but let me just ask you, uh, yes. you had mentioned earlier that, that um, demons and a possession can mirror or mimic a psychological disorder. So could it not be the case that the psychologist has said, yes, we think we know what this person, you know, this is uh, some sort of a, a psychosis or, or something, when in fact they've, you know, they've been deceived. And so... They may believe it's a psychosis, but it's not. It's actually a possession. You have. An, that's an excellent, excellent point. I've said this for many years. Who's to say that the person's psychosis was not first triggered by a demonic oppression? That's where the demonic plants a seed in someone's mind. And the person thinks that he's acting on negative behavior and it's his idea, not knowing that it was an outside influence that actually place this dark seed within his mind and who's to say that dark seed developed into a chemical imbalance in the brain and as a result he became as we review psychotic who's to say that the darkness is not responsible for that and i gotta tell you richard um i'm kind of uh i'm on the side of, of, of saying you know it's very possible and this goes for all our pains and all the mental anguish that we go through all these things do not come from God. God is love. God is not about making us suffer. I believe the suffering comes from the source. And the source, of course, is the iniquity of Satan and all of his demons. All right. We'll take hypothesis. Uh, Archbishop, we'll take a time out. We'll uh, come back and we'll talk about the uh, ritual or sacrament of exorcism. On the other side, stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Archbishop Ron File and Wright, my guest, and he is the chief exorcist for the uh, Sacred Order of St. Michael the Archangel, and he um, is here to tell us about protocols and uh, the actual uh, ritual. Is it considered, a, is it one of the sacraments, exorcism? It is a sacramental 
scenario. It's not a sacrament, but it is a sacramental. So it, 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 it's very important in terms of the process. All right. So during your training period, I mean, the, the first time you, you were in the presence uh, or witnessed an actual exorcism, what did you see? Is it is it sort of the this, the the Hollywood stereotypical uh, you know levitation, animal type sounds, uh, speaking in in strange tongues, all of these superhuman strength? Is all of that accurate, or is that Hollywood? A lot of that plus some are very accurate. Let me um, let me start with just by telling you that if you've ever been in the city morgue. Um, it's really cold, and, and they have that for a reason. Um, they have a bunch of slabs with dead bodies, dead cadavers, and you have this eerie feeling as you walk by them. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Uh, Thank God, Richard. no, not so far. Thank God. Okay, well, well, maybe you should visit your city morgue, and, and just, just for the experience of it, just walk by the bodies that are laying on the slabs. And as you do, you will notice something that's really interesting. And that is that, well, first of all, all the, all the bodies are covered with a sheet. But you can still see the outline of who they were. And as you're walking, you could actually smell a certain scent that may be coming from one or all of the cadavers that happen to be in that ward as you're walking by. And when you do that, I want you to imagine what you might feel like. Now, that's the feeling I felt when I witnessed my first dozen um, real demonic possession cases. I felt the uneasiness. I felt the presence of death. And the victim, though the victim was not covered with a sheet over her head or his head, but their skin was a very off-colored gray as if you would see in a cadaver. And they almost represent what you would probably see in the morgue, except one big difference, and that is the individual would actually say words. And in some cases, it's in Latin. In some cases, it's in other languages that they've never been taught. It's always insulting words in regards to whoever walks into the room. If there's a group of people in the room, the victim would look around and point to an individual and tell them. And when I say point, I mean with their face, with their attention, will go to an individual in the room and can will say out loud whatever negative thing is going on in their lives. Um, anything from affairs to, uh, to, to, to doing heinous things behind closed doors. And it seems that the person, the victim, has insight knowledge of these things and would speak of them uh, in front of the crowd and that would weaken whatever role that individual has in the process of the ritual if it's an assistant priest if it's an investigator who's present whoever the individual is that includes the priest himself who's actually performing the exorcism if the priest the assistants who reads uh, they read the uh, the responses or the investigators, and they're there to witness the actual event, because everything's done behind closed doors. So everyone is watching, and and te- and, and they could testify, uh, if cornered, that this is exactly what happened, because it's a unique experience. It's something that you you would never forget. 
And, uh, and as I said, when the victim looks and focuses their attention to you, to the exorcist or any person in the room, they become distracted, so much so that the distraction is no longer on the victim, but on themselves, because now they're in a place in an uncomfortable position where they have to either um, come clean with all their secrets or, um, or just be humiliated. It's, um, and it's, it's going to be very, very, uh, <laughs> very bad, to say the least, to everyone that's involved, including the priest. So they demonstrate psychic ability. Uh, yes. What about levitation? We hear so much about that. Uh, in all the years I've done this, uh, and in the 800,000 cases that I've actually been directly involved in, in regards to demonic issues, I could say I've done about just over 2,000. And those are actual rituals. And in those 2,000, I'd say maybe I've witnessed about at least a dozen times people that would actually levitate. And that is that actually would come up from whatever they're laying. If they're they're lying on the floor, they'd come up from the floor and it'd go way up to the ceiling and they'd stay there. You know, they'd like, you know, defy the laws of gravity, if you will. (laughs) They would actually be hovering like just over your, just overhead. And uh, it's a series of prayers and and focusing in on what is actually taking place. The focusing in would be where the priest would be largely responsible, along with his assistants and any of the investigators that are in the room, because everyone is praying. And so the individual would slowly, slowly come down. We had one individual that was up there for six hours, and no one knew really what to do. And uh, and as a result, you know, I'm standing there. Another bishop, who's an exorcist, he's standing there. He's never witnessed this before either. We've we've all seen, you know, levitation. We've never seen someone who would just stay up there. I mean, it was like just beyond our reach. That person's floating, just you know, just just below the ceiling. And uh, and you talk about <laughs> something that really will, you know, will shock you in in terms of. Uh, of, of, of what's going, what's taking place. It, right. I mean, you mentioned it, it was life-changing. Kind of yeah, I was going to ask you, is yeah. it, I mean, is it, in a, in a strange way, is that faith-affirming, or does it just, I mean, do you ever get used to that? Well, nobody really gets used to um, evil, because evil comes in so many different forms. When you're confronted with the embodiment of evil, which would be the actual person that's possessed by the demonic entity, demonic uh, spirit, uh, and, and the demon is actually manifesting its characteristics and its personality through the person's body, it, it can really, you know, push you back quite a bit. No two cases are alike, so every case is totally different. You never know what to expect until you're in the room, until there's dead silence, and until you start opening your prayer book and start praying. Nobody really knows, because anything could take place. In all the years, we've had some people that have passed on who've actually died in the ritual. We've had victims that have died in the ritual. We've had victims that died after, like several months after the ritual. There's a whole lot of things that uh, that are, man, and they're not really mysteries. We basically know what's going on in regards to retaliation of the spirit. 
Um, and there's a lot of that that could happen. Things get a lot worse before they get better. So that means when a person um, is has their hopes up, their family members have their hope up that the exorcism ritual will get rid of the, the demon and they'll be totally delivered. Well, yes, that will probably happen. But there is a real possibility of that entity coming back and repossessing the individual. If it someone has a lot to do with the individual and how they've changed their lifestyle, because if they go back to doing what they were doing, they could be repossessed real easy. If, if someone passes away during the exorcism, what what kind of investigation then goes on? Did, does the church then fall under suspicion? I mean, how, how, the, you know, what, what happens? Well, first the police is called. First, you know, you have a, we, we call the police, the fire department shows up, you know, they do their, their investigation, they question everyone, you know, the whole nine yards. And uh, so we never hide anything from the, from the legal authorities. Can't do that. Um, we have three psychiatrists, upstanding citizens. We have a lead. Uh, he's a lead uh, investigator, uh, and he happens to be a captain of a police department in Mississippi. And he is the lead investigator. And in his team, he has four members in his team that are police officers. So, you know, we, we try to follow the, the, you know, and be ethical in everything. We have no secrets. The only thing that we keep away from the public is the is the confidentiality agreement that we make with the victim and their family. And that is, we hold that very sacred because what takes place in that room is so terrifying, can be so humiliating, can be so embarrassing. There are so many things that can go wrong. There are so many things that will go wrong. And as a result, these are individuals. These are real people. They don't want this to follow them for the rest of their lives, if at all possible. And, uh, and yeah, in fact, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. You know, do you remember the movie The Exorcist? I, I was going to ask and, you how accurate that was. Yeah, I, well, you know, it, it was the it was probably the first movie of its kind that actually zoomed in on certain things that were actually pretty accurate. But if you notice, it was based on a real person who was actually a boy. Yes, and uh, to this day he's alive, and his identity is still a secret. No one really knows his name yet. He was uh, he's been alive for and still alive for some time now. All right, uh, uh, Archbishop, I have to break away uh, yet again. Please okay. uh, hold on. We'll be back on the other side. The conspiracy show with Richard Serrett continues right after this. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Archbishop Ron File Enright is my guest, and he is the chief exorcist with the uh, sacred order of St. Michael the Archangel. And he has performed, did you say 2,000 exorcisms? Just over 2,000. Hmm. And you were saying earlier that uh, The Exorcist, the movie, very accurate. Uh, you've witnessed levitations. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I say it's accurate. It's not, it's not 100% accurate. It has a lot of things that, that could have been placed or put into the movie. But uh, there's only so much that, that, um, that people can handle, especially if it's based on truth. Right, right. And you were saying that there have been occasions when the, the victim of the possession has died during the exorcism. What do they die from? Is it a heart attack, just from fear, or what, what ultimately would kill someone during an exorcism? 
there's many reasons why one would die. Um, of course, heart attacks, that's definitely one. Poor health could be another uh, person. Could, that's why it's important that we have me- uh, medical records, not only psychological records, but medical records. Find out if the individual's a diabetic, if he has a heart condition, if he has any implants, if there are any other issues that could appear with a very stressful event. Um, and so, I mean, and then you have people in the room that have been known to just drop where they're standing and uh, and not believing and accepting what they're actually witnessing with their own eyes. When you do that, you you have a psychological crash, you know? You can't reason as to what the heck am I looking at? I mean, is this real or, you know, and then you start wondering and, and you know, our, our brain is very a complex computer and, and when it crashes, it will crash, and the whole body will react accordingly, which means you have anything from heart attacks, strokes, all kinds of uh, various diseases can you know, seep in. And that's why it's important we understand that the victim has a, a clean bill of health when it comes to a, right. a, a physical. Yeah. Do these demons name themselves? Their names are based on their actions. Okay? And so... As a result, we have to learn what their names are. And when we do, then we, um, we order them to leave the premises. We evict them, if you will. And we do that in the power of Christ, in the power of his name. Because we don't do that with our own accord. Our attention has to be for the victim, 100%. And just as God can see through us and knows exactly what our intentions are, so can Satan. And as a result, if you're not, if you don't prepare yourself for what could possibly be the most terrifying experience you'll ever have in your life, if you don't prepare yourself for that, then a lot of things could happen. A lot of things could go wrong. And as a result, it doesn't mean just the victim. I'm talking about the people that are in the room itself. So it's extremely important. You know that we uh, that we follow the the protocol. Okay, so and that's exactly what we do. This is a short segment, so let's start now, and then we'll uh, into after the break. We'll we'll get into it in some more depth. But let's start the conversation now. Let's talk about some of the the physical, mental uh, signatures of a, a an authentic demonic possession. Let's start with the physical. What changes? You no, know, there's a lot of things that could actually go on at one time. It's not just one at a time. It's it's all the things at times. But we just go with the physical changes. Um, they it could be a person that will like demonstrate long periods of time without blinking their eyes. You know, it's all about the details, and that would be one of the many details. Um, the person can um, start speaking in different languages or with accents. You know, which are totally and completely foreign from from the victim or the family, the person can um, speak in tongues. That is, speak a lot of, not what the Pentecostals would call tongues, but a lot of gibberish can come out of the individual's mouth. Um, his eyes could change. His eyes could get very dark, like a shark, or extremely white. It just depends um, what we are actually dealing with. We've seen changes, uh, physical changes of the skin turning into a, like a, a dry gray tone, and that's from head to toe. Um, individuals that um, 
let's say, know things that they should know, know people's histories or know about history from um, 100, 200 years ago, or maybe even knows the history of every individual in the room, which is like really very startling to say the least. Some victims have written marks on their bodies where things are written actually like, like it'll either be a number or a series of number or actually a short message. Like a scarring, a scarring, you mean? Yeah, scarring. uh, Some will appear to be like burn marks or welts around the skin area. And um, and that's not from from anything that um, that could be done in terms of of uh, self-mutilation or anything like that. This is something uh, where it could be in an area where they can't even reach. Um, Then you have hair coloring. The hair coloring can change can change from red to white, can change from black to white, it could change from white to, well, to another color. Right. I mean, they're just lots of colors. What about superhuman strength? Superhuman strength. They have that uh, plus, they have the strength of, of five individuals who would be their weight size. And it's the reason that they could take an individual and literally throw them across the room. Um, that's not a problem. Restraining, you know, there's a, this is, and it sounds bar- barbaric, you know, when I say this and when people hear this, but, but what we do is we have to tie the victim down to something because the person has tremendous amount of strength and wants to do nothing but destroy and, and create chaos. So by bounding them, and again, I know this sounds barbaric, but this is a, this is something that had, that's always been done in the beginning of time because of a lot of bad things that have happened in the past where they just simply attacked people that were in the room and many of them fatal. And as a result, you know, someone bites you in the throat, you're not going to survive that. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's precautions that have to be taken. And that goes for, you know, if there are windows in the room, they've got to be covered. They have to be boarded if possible. They have to be covered. They cannot be any outside influences. We have to be totally focused on what takes place. So, yes, uh, they have tremendous amount of strength. Um, they could also, uh, there have been many cases where you could actually hear multiple voices come out of their mouth. There's like three people talking at one time. Oh, I thought we were talking about the federal election <laughs> coming up. <laughs> anyway, we'll uh, listen. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, uh, continue to delve into, uh, in all seriousness, a very dark and sinister topic: demonic possession. Stay with us. Happy birthday to you. Hey, Bye. where's Mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned sixty-five, which means. There's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.